Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. On election night 2018, one of the key indicators that it was going to be a big night for Democrats was the election of Abigail Spanberger to the U.S. Congress from the 7th District of Virginia, a district that was traditionally Republican, that takes in the suburban areas around Richmond, Virginia. She won, despite the fact that Donald Trump had carried that district. It's been an eventful 14 months for Representative Spanberger, who has a remarkable story of her own as a CIA operative and as an agent for the U.S. Postal Inspector Service. I sat down with her in Washington the other day to talk about how she's navigating these very polarized times in a very, very difficult district. Abigail Spanberger, it's so good to see you. We were chatting before we got started. One of the ways that I was gauging how the night was going in November of 2018 in that election was these districts in Virginia, including yours, that uh, turned blue. And uh, I've been following you closely since then. And uh, so it's great to be with you. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah. I'm a big Homeland fan, so I wanted to meet like a sane version of of Carrie (laughs) Matheson, you know, and I I think you may be it, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that, sure. We'll get to that. (laughs) Let's start from the start. You are born in New Jersey. That's right. Your dad was a U.S. postal inspector. That's right, yeah. And and your mom a nurse. Yes. And you moved down to Virginia. That's right. So with my dad's job, we moved every couple of years. And when I was finishing up middle school, we got transferred to Virginia. And my dad's job got transferred to Virginia. So we moved to Virginia. And um, that's actually where my family stayed. My dad decided to finish his career there and stay there for the entirety of um, his career until he retired. And so Virginia has been home for me for many decades at this point. Yeah, yeah. And tell me about your folks. So my parents are wonderful people. My dad is calm and uh, low blood pressure and unflappable and just a really um, uh, silent but strong, strong person uh, with a good sense of humor that you one rarely sees unless you know him well. Uh, and when I was growing up, he was always... Especially in a postal inspector. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a certain type of personality to spend your career doing really 
cool work and then having no one ever know what your job is because it has a name that doesn't really firmly connect with, you know, complex fraud cases as my dad predominantly worked. Uh, and he worked in New York for years and he worked in Philadelphia for a time uh, and up in Bangor, Maine as well. And, um, you know, I remember my dad would get up when we lived in New Jersey and he worked in New York City. He would leave the house at, at uh, five in the morning and he would take the bus into New York and then he'd take the bus into New York and then he would go out and work, uh, take the bus in, and then he would take the the subway out because uh, he worked in Brooklyn for a time and he worked, I think, in Long Island for a time. And, and then he would get home late, late at night. But my dad was always happy and he always loved his job. And, um, and so he always very openly spoke about the value of service to country. And my mom, she was a nurse, and she worked in various different uh, capacities as a nurse. She worked as an ER nurse for many, many years. And so when I was a little kid, she would work every Friday night. She'd work the night shift. And my grandfather, who spent his career, he worked in a paint factory. He would come over on Friday nights, and my dad and my grandfather uh, would spend the evening. I have two younger sisters, one of whom wasn't born at this time. And so my my middle sister and I would play games, and we'd put on dance shows. And you know, my grandfather, we used to play this game with him because he worked in a paint, paint factory, and so he always had flecks of paint on his ears. And so no matter how much he tidy up and VO5 his hair and dress up, he would always have little (laughs) flecks of paint behind his ears. And my sister Hillary and I used to always sit in his lap and guess all the paint that he had mixed that week uh, because there'd be flecks of purple. And and we'd play this (laughs) funny game where we'd say, oh, it's purple, Grandpa. And he'd tell us whatever the sort of paint name was. And I remember it being really funny when he would, you know, oh, no, it's, you know, indigo nighttime or, you know, something. Um, And so those are some of my fondest, fondest memories. And and my mom was in home and and they always talked about my parents were always very clear that, you know, other people sometimes needed them more than we did. And then for a time, my mom uh, volunteered at a series of free clinics, clinics that exist in the Richmond area. Uh, She also did home infusion work. And so there's a number of holidays one day, which is an infamous story. My mother got called away. A patient wasn't doing well. It was Christmas Eve and our Christmas Eve tradition used to always be to have uh, shrimp. And so my mother got called away. A patient needed her. And they would say, you know, they need her more than we do. Um, And then it was my duty to put the shrimp out. Well, allegedly, I didn't do it correctly. And food poisoned my sister, who's 10 years younger. (laughs) Yeah. Not deliberate, I trust. (laughs) No. But my sister's only now getting over that. Yeah, yeah. They bring it up frequently. Speaking of uh, your sister, I read that you uh, kept a diary (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you began writing in code That's right. in your diary, and you had a, a code name for your younger sister in well, the diary. It wasn't poisoned by shrimp, was it? It was No. A, well, this is a different sister. It oh, was I my, see. my baby sister, Meredith, is the one that I accidentally poisoned with food <laughs> poisoning and shrimp. But it's my other sister, Hillary, who, you know, she's a problem solver herself. When we were kids, she found my diary. She couldn't yet read, so she thought it would be a great idea to take it next door and have our next door neighbor read it and decipher it for her. That must have been very pleasing to you. Um, Especially because a lot of the diary talked about um, my next door neighbor's little (laughs) brother um, and, you know, my fourth grade crush or whatnot. So uh, that was unfortunate. That was when the code was invented? That's when the code became necessary. I see. And was that a precursor to your uh, future career? I think so. so. And you also were interested in languages at an early age. Why? So I had, I think this is the cause of it. I had a neighbor who lived behind us when we were kids, and Yolanda was the our 
she lived behind us and she would babysit us some afternoons and her grandchildren um she, her grandchildren were about our ages and so we would play with her grandkids um and she was just this warm beautiful woman but she didn't speak very much English. And so she would always talk to her grandkids. Uh, and the one who was my age was Dusty. So she would always speak to Dusty in Spanish. And I, I thought it was so amazing that there was this this whole other way of communicating that I didn't know anything about. And There wasn't either English or your code. Huh? Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, my code, it was merely a written language. It didn't have... Uh, I say it wasn't a spoken language. It wasn't language. a spoken yeah. language. And, um, and I remember wanting so badly to be able to speak with Yolanda. So I got a book out of the library and I remember in, at my own home and my parents speak English, you know, talking to my mother and saying, comida, agua, and thinking I was so kind of worldly <laughs> as I was uh, attempting to learn these Spanish words. And then it, it went on from there. You know, I, I saw that they had this connection, Dusty and Yolanda in this other language and certainly Yolanda and her sons who were my parents' age they would speak. Dusty had some Spanish knowledge, but they would speak this whole conversation and it wasn't something that I could understand. And then when I got a little bit older, uh, there was a an after-school enrichment in German. And so I forced my middle sister to take it with me. And so we had German names and I was Heidi and she was Gisela. <laughs> and so we learned German songs. And I remember one time being in a hotel, checking in. We were on vacation with my parents and I said to Hillary, let's let's pretend we're German kids and we don't know our parents, which I was clearly an aggravating child. But And so we were sitting there and we were standing off in the corner of the hotel singing the song in, in German. Um, and when our parents would come over, we're like, oh, uh, yeah, nine. I, I, I mean, because we had very basic hello. Now, Spamberger, is that a German name? So Spanberger is my married name. That's my husband's name. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, and yes. And so, but his family's, uh, it's a German name, but his family immigrated from Hungary. And your family? Davis. Yes. Not a German name. Not a, but my father is Davis and Hemhauser and my mother's family, uh, they were brown, but originally bronze. So we have quite a few Germans in the family. I see. Yeah. When you were a teenager, you were an intern for Chuck Robb, the senator from Virginia. That's right. How did that come about? So I was a Senate page for Chuck Robb, and the way that I found out about that program is I was visiting my grandparents, in, who at the time had retired to upstate New York, and my grandfather, uh, not the one who worked in the paint factory, my maternal grandfather, uh, was always focused on world events. And so he always wanted to talk to me about world events. Even when I was a very, very small child, he would give me reading lists. Take out a pen and paper. I'm going to give you your reading list. So I'd take my reading list from my grandfather and usually – you know, make it through one or two books. But he had a neighbor where they retired in, in upstate New York. He had a neighbor who had been, who had just returned from being a Senate page. I don't remember the Senator at the time. He was in, uh, in, in this teenager. Maybe who was Al D'Amato, maybe. No, the other one. Moynihan? Yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Senator <laughs> the Moynihan. The other one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Senator Moynihan. He's passed on. Yes. He, I'm sure he'd be delighted to hear you refer to him as the other oh, one. But anyway. Oh, my goodness. Sorry to anyone. Uh, oh. You anyway. House members are always hard on the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fairness, they, they reciprocate. Um, and so this young teenager had been a Senate page for Senator Moynihan. And he had bonded with my grandfather talking about this incredible experience. And my grandfather said, you have to, you have to figure out how to do this. Go talk to that boy over there. Learn all about his experience. I did. And so – I thought it was super fascinating, and I got back home to Virginia, and I wrote letters to uh, – at the time, we had Senator Rob and Senator mm -hmm. John Warner, 
And I also wrote letters to Senator Daschle because at the time Daschle was the Democratic leader and had the ability to kind of fill extra spots. So as I understood it at the time, Rob didn't have a consistent ability to to appoint a page that was done by seniority. But I think I hounded enough of the <laughs> enough U.S. senators that finally they gave Rob the spot. Now, were you Democrats or was there a partisan bent to your family or thinking? My dad as a career public servant was always under the Hatch Act. But generally. presumably he, he voted. Oh, yes. My parents were both my parents were always very strong Democrats. Mm-hmm. But politics entered more into the space with my mother. She had done a lot of work Again, she worked in free clinics. She was always very focused on healthcare issues for a time when she, at the very early stages of the AIDS epidemic, would go see and chose to and would see the majority of the AIDS patients. And sometimes that was um, when when not every healthcare provider understood the disease and, and, and felt more concerned. My mother felt it was her duty to be as engaged with mm-hmm. um, a sick patient who needs her as any other patient. And, and she didn't. The lack of understanding that it existed around that virus um, at the time, I remember her saying, "It's it's my duty. They need me just as much." Were as Were you worried other about it? I mean, I was a I was a child, and I I don't remember ever being really worried because my mother was so forceful in mm-hmm. her opinion that this is the right thing to do, and if you do the right thing, full stop. You yeah. know, that's it. Yeah, that's a great quality. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> the, the Senate Page experience. Yeah. How was that? It was really interesting. So you spend a semester of school living on Capitol Hill. You go to school very early in the morning, um, and it's an abbreviated study day. I think it's about two hours worth of classes, and, and you get your core That's English, math, science. That's about as much science. as I used to spend in a full day, but anyway. <laughs> and then you go over to the Senate, and you sit on the Senate floor, literally sit on the Senate floor, and you learn everybody's water preferences because, indeed, we spend a lot of our time getting the senator's water. Um, at least at that time. And we would run around the Senate office buildings delivering the dailies. And I don't know if they still do this, but it was the written printed clips clips of newspaper, which in the age of the Internet probably isn't nearly as necessary. So we deliver the dailies and we'd run paper and – you know, it, it's interesting because from a child's perspective, I had the ability – or teenager's you were 16, perspective. Really. Yeah, so a teenager's perspective. I had the ability to see all these people that I had seen on television mm-hmm. and then in engaging with them in a really Were there people who uh, – when you saw them in real life, were there people who struck you in a positive way or, or I guess a negative way, but you're, you're a practicing politician, so you may not want to answer well, that? Some of the things that struck me at the time, like Ted Kennedy used to doodle all the time. Mm -hmm. And in the back off the Senate floor where we would wait when we weren't on the floor, we would take turns on the floor or off in this hallway. And he, you know, this is before cell phones. So people would take phone calls at these desks. And so I, I remember that we would just be just so awestruck that there would be Senator Kennedy who had this booming voice Mm -hmm. and he would be on the phone talking about whatever he was talking about. But he, when he would get up, he'd walk away and there'd be this piece of paper that had just doodles everywhere. And so it's interesting. Did you grab them? uh, Perhaps. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think that's an interesting thing because you see someone who's this larger than life character and then they do something as human as doodling. Yeah. Right. Which is, which was interesting. And uh, his brother famously used to sketch and doodle during Really? Meetings, yeah. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Did people strike you with their kindness? Did they? Yeah. Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia, yeah. he used to always tell us stories. And so he would, when he was walking either on or off the floor. Stories from history? 
Yes, but there was always a theme. So, so he would say, "Oh, you know, I've got a, I've got stories," and he would tell us these these incredibly elaborate stories. And at the end of the story, it always had the same theme, which is the grass is not greener. This is your home. You build it, you make it stronger. And so, you know, but he was a fantastic storyteller because he would, as I remember it, speak slowly and mm-hmm. proudly yeah. and calmly. Yeah. And, and the story he was, was always- great orators yes. in the Senate. And, and even with us, you know, in, in, as teenagers, he would, the story, we were always captivated. And you, and you knew the story was always going to get back to like, invest in your home, <laughs> invest in America. But he would, you know, it would be like a mouse in the fields and those sorts of stories that come back with the steam. Did you, uh, he was a homespun guy, yeah. but also a constitutional scholar. I mean, he, he was uh, forever. And I remember his office being one of the most magical places because there were just books everywhere and things hanging on the walls everywhere. And Senator Thurman actually used to bring us chocolates from the members' dining room. These stories are interesting because Joe Biden got in trouble for speaking at the uh, funerals of uh, Senator Hollings, Senator uh, Thurman, and so on, who were notorious for their views in the past on on race. And it doesn't speak to common humanity and We don't have that ability today, and you probably experience it yourself. I know in the House, I'm told you sometimes walk in through the Republican (laughs) side, uh, that inability to interact as human beings is a real problem for a democracy. I would agree with you. I think the basic inability, or even, you know, you spoke to people sort of getting in trouble for having cross- Political trouble. Yeah, political trouble, we'll say. I think it's really unfortunate because I have very firmly held beliefs and I have things that I'm working for. But you have to build, one, you have to build some level of a coalition. And, and certainly I have many colleagues who are never going to join me in my efforts on a particular piece of legislation. But it is super helpful to understand why they might disagree with me. Yeah. Because if I can understand why somebody who's ideologically on the opposite side of the spectrum, what that person's problem is with something I'm proposing or a priority. Now, if they just totally disagree with the objective, that's good to know. But if they, in principle, think, okay, I don't think you're wrong about the objective, but. The means. But the means. Well, there might be space for me to expand the means, at least for me to think through the means. And that's important. And and I think that ultimately being able to talk to people you disagree with on, on really, at, at times, very emotional, very important things is a skill set that brings value to our ability to make good legislation. Well, you mentioned Ted Kennedy. One of his strengths in 50 years in the United States Senate was those relationships, and mm-hmm. not just with Democrats, but Republicans. Uh, at his memorial service, John McCain spoke and Orrin Hatch spoke. And when I, I did a television show with John McCain a few years ago, and he talked about his relationship with Ted Kennedy and how they could fight like hell on the floor yeah. of the Senate and then put their arms around each other and laugh about who got the better of the argument. And that would be disdained, I think, in today's political culture that how can you be fraternize with, with someone who, yeah, it's uh, something that's been lost that I think is really regrettable. Did you emerge from that experience saying, hey, I'm going to come back here and fill one of these chairs someday? No. (laughs) No. I always knew that I wanted to work in public service. I always thought that I... Because of your parents? I guess it's one of those things. you, You know what's out there based on what you see. My parents both were 
focused on service. My mother is a nurse and I had zero interest in going into the medical profession. My father was a public servant and believed very deeply in it. And I think for me, working for the government, serving the country was something that I literally have a letter that my parents sent me for the new year, a letter they sent to my sisters and me that literally says the word, there's no higher calling than service to country. Like it is literally something that they instilled in us very, very distinctly throughout my entire life. But not necessarily service in public office where you'd be elected. No, because for me, the privacy aspect of it, I I wasn't so, I didn't find the element of being a public figure to be something that I thought would be suitable for, <laughs> for what I'd like. Kind of cross that Rubicon, my uh, friend. I know. I'm, I'm, yeah. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's pretty funny that I went from being an undercover CIA officer to now a very public figure. Um, yeah. Yeah. You said uh, earlier that your father did these cool things and no one knew what he did. Mm-hmm. You kind of took it to the extreme. Yeah. And went to work for the CIA. Why did you choose to you applied almost right out of college right i applied right out of grad school and and i had planned to right after what my goal had been was i was going to graduate undergrad which i did uh i moved to germany which i did at university of virginia that's right Mm -hmm. uh i moved to germany and i spent a summer teaching english in germany and then i entered a graduate program and got my mba in a dual degree german program uh between uh, a german institution and and at the time it was a dual degree program with purdue university's cranert school of uh, management and i was going to go through that program work in germany for a number of years that was the plan perfect my german use my business skills and then go back home and be this great candidate for cia with all this international experience and then i was in grad school on 9-11 and i had the thought of well if this is what i want to be doing in five years if i want to be serving my country in this way in five years i should be doing it now and so instead of staying in Germany after I graduated, I moved to DC. Why the CIA? Because it's the best. <laughs> I mean, spoken like a true CIA person. Yes. I don't know. And objectively, you know, I didn't know much about any of the agencies. Um, Did they come recruiting or? No. So I applied across the board. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, and I went through the process uh, for State Department for Foreign Service. I went through the process with NSA. I went through the process with uh, National Geospatial. And I really wanted to be a case officer. And I didn't necessarily know what that was. You know, from movies, they, you've got movies about being a case officer. I think for me, it was that was the where I thought all of the things that I wanted to do would come together. And in, indeed, I was right. I mean, I don't know what the other alternatives would have been like, but um, it was certainly the right place for me. Well, you, you applied right away because you thought you ought to do this right yeah. away. They took their Forever. own sweet time to decide <laughs> that you were right for them, four years yeah. to evaluate you. Why did it take so long? What were you up to that caused uh, the CIA to take four years to evaluate you? So I applied, I guess it was September of what, I guess it would have been 2002. And I had my job offer, my conditional offer, December of 2002. And then ultimately it took until 2006 for my background check. So the conditional offer is conditional on your psych eval and your medical eval and your background check. Yeah. And so I kind of hurtled through the first portions of that pretty quickly, and then my background check took forever. I had spent time overseas, but so do most CIA officers. I think, if I am honest about it, it's that I was a very young Mm -hmm. 
person um, at the time, comparatively. This mm-hmm. is post 9-11 surge hiring. And I spoke romance languages mm-hmm. and German. Uh, so I, I used to joke with them that I know that when they were sort of stacking all the papers, I'd say, oh, yeah, she's got time and would yeah. drop me to the bottom. They were looking for Arab speakers. probably. Yeah. And there's also there's an age limit too. you can't join CIA, at least into the director of operations after 37. Mm-hmm. And so in this post 9-11 era, there were a lot of career changers, people coming I see. in kind of mid-career 30s. And, and so I think I used to say I think that they took priority and I would drop to the bottom of the pile. You worked there Maybe for almost 10 problem. years. Yeah. You've been faithful to your oath and have not been very forthcoming about exactly what you were doing. But it was clear that you were out in the field and doing things that were dangerous or at least risky. Yeah. And you also were having and raising a family at the time. And I was curious about that. How did you juggle that? Did you have a concern? or That's why I asked you earlier about your mother yeah. and the AIDS epidemic did you leave for whatever you were doing and if you do want to talk about it this is a great spot (laughs) if you want to finally disclose what it was that you were doing and i have gotten legally my employment declassified i have a cleared resume so i i know the general parameters of what i'm allowed to talk about and so i would go out to meet foreign nationals who were providing information to the u.s government and there's a whole host of reasons why someone might choose to give information. There's a whole host of individuals that I was meeting with. I focused for a number of years on issues related to counterterrorism, nuclear proliferation, drug trafficking, particularly throughout Central America and Mexico, and then basic kind of understanding for the leadership of foreign countries. And so I would at times, and when you would leave to go to one of these meetings, you would disconnect from any technology that could be used to track you. So I would always leave when I would go on trips, I would leave train schedules for my husband and say, okay, well, this is the train schedule. I, you know, this is when I think I'll be home. You know, if uh, I get delayed here or there, this is when I'll be home. This is when you should probably wait up. And this is when you should call my boss and leave these. And how did he process this? You guys met in high school, right? So you've known, you knew each other. Yeah. But we, he, did he know what he was signing up for? I don't think anybody knows what they're signing up for when they marry someone who's who's choosing this life. We both joke that it's it's really excellent compartmentalization is key to it. I think it took its toll or certainly weighed on him, but it was a it, I think we both saw it as an adventure. I believe very deeply in what I was doing and that was the Were there moments when you feared for your own safety? There were I, there were moments when I thought I would never want my child to be doing this. Mm-hmm. I don't want my children to grow up and think this is a good idea. And so I don't know if that means that uh, you know, even uh, I was on empty metros. I was on, you know, walking streets in foreign cities at very inopportune hours of the day in areas of town that no one would ever go to. So, you know, even if it's, you know, did I ever have a gun to my head? And absolutely not. Um, but you did want to have, have one in your on your person. Um, not as a not as a CIA officer. Mm. I did not. You did do a stint as a, a postal inspector. I did. I followed before at, at, agency during my in, lengthy in background the check process. Waiting for your background yeah. check. So that was cool um, because you know I had I had toyed with the idea of is law enforcement having grown up in a law enforcement family is law enforcement the right path for me or is intelligence collection. Um, and those variations on a similar theme, but they're very different. And one is very overt and you wear a gun and you have a badge and you are this person of authority when you enter a particular situation because you are a federal agent. And then the CIA is the kind of opposite side of that coin. 
And so while I was going through my background check, I had applied. I, you know, I mentioned a couple of the places I, I had applied. I applied with the FBI, applied with Secret Service, applied uh, with the Postal Inspection Service, and and they. I ended up choosing to go with them. I I got a job offer relatively quickly, and so I went through the academy. I was trained to carry a firearm. I carried a gun every day, and I worked on the dangerous males team. I believe we called it at the time, and uh, and so I worked narcotics and money laundering cases. And when I was in D.C., uh, I worked potential anthrax cases. So this is post nine eleven when there was frequently anthrax. For a time, real anthrax, but then it became a lot of hoaxes after that. And so I used to work jointly on those issues. And then I worked HIDA, high-intensity drug trafficking area cases with local law enforcement and uh, FBI and DEA and state and local police. Why would you leave the uh, CIA? It was a culmination of a couple things. I had reached a point where you know, I was really pivoting in my career. Where do we go next? We had spent time overseas. We were then on the West Coast living domestically and you know we were thinking these are all the places we might go and I, a story i've told on the campaign trail which i i think gives a, a good explanation of it one day it was a saturday morning and adam and i were you know having breakfast and our oldest daughter who was five at the time was bouncing about and we said we were looking at locations to bid on because it was bid season and so you bid on different locations and then they choose you and then you go like that's how it works and so it was bidding season we were starting to look where were there going to be availability what type of what is it like for families to live there where do we want to be and so it just was what was meant to be a fun conversation. And my, we said, oh, do you want to live in Nairobi or London or San Jose? We're you know, pointing all these mm-hmm. places on the map. And we had friends who were posted in Nairobi at the time, and we would Skype with them, and they had monkeys in their backyard. So I thought, surely she's going to say Nairobi. And she said, well, Virginia. And we said, no, no, that's not an option. And she said, well, but I want to live in Virginia. And she said, everybody we love lives in Virginia. Why don't we live in Virginia? And it was a really insightful thing, I think, perhaps, or maybe very basic. But in any way, it struck a chord with me. And Adam and I started kind of joking about moving back to Virginia. Well, maybe we'll bid on this place or maybe we'll go to Virginia. And and what was started as a very basic conversation that was in jest or kind of lighthearted became, well, maybe we should go look at houses or maybe we should move. And so ultimately, we made the decision to try moving to Virginia. And, and our family plan was we'll move there for five years and invest in the community where we both had grown up that we really loved, be close to family, be close to our kids, cousins, our siblings. And then if I want to go back to CIA, I'll, I'll pivot back after mm-hmm. five years. I had known of many people who had left for a time and come back. And then we moved to Virginia and it was home. And, and it was hard to leave the agency. It, hard, it was hard to leave that lifestyle where there's such an urgency to every day. You were involved in the most important things in the world. And if you're not, your friend is. And to feel like you are serving this really important purpose every day. But I found new ways to kind of invest my time in the community. I started a Girl Scout troop. I became a volunteer with Moms Demand Action. You were with an executive, like an educational recruitment. That's right. I worked for a company. They've changed their name a number of times now. They're, uh, it was the advisory board company. Now it's called EAB. And so they handle uh, recruitment of students to universities. They work on developing recruitment strategies, implementing recruitment strategies, and kind of a variety of things in the educational consulting space. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. What is the state of the intelligence community today? Everyone understands the tension between the president and the intelligence community, a lot of it flowing from the original investigation of Russia's intervention Mm -hmm. in the 2016 election. Now we've seen a succession of directors of national intelligence. We have an acting director, Rick Grinnell, who many people have criticized as not being qualified for that job, but quite loyal to the president. And now he has nominated one of your colleagues, John Ratcliffe, for the job who previously was surfaced and rejected because many in the Senate on the Republican side Mm -hmm. felt he was unqualified. First of all, what is your view of those appointments? What is your view of the president's basic posturing toward the intelligence community? And what is the impact on morale of the intelligence community? Yeah, I think at its most basic level, it is very difficult for someone who is sacrificing a lot, be it the ability to spend holidays with family or even putting their lives in risk at risk on a weekly, daily basis. It is very hard for those individuals to hear some of the assaults on the agency, to hear that the members of the intelligence community are themselves partisan or are serving, you know, insert whatever sort of uh, rhetoric is put out there because the intelligence community for the time that I was there uh, and, and continues today with the friends who I still have there has always been more of a nonpartisan. It had to be, it was a nonpartisan element of the executive branch. It was a group of people who were different, you know, and and you get the best intelligence when you have a variety of people on the ground working. You have intelligence analysts who are, you know, of different backgrounds, different perspectives, digging through information, asking the right questions. And so what has traditionally been the strength of the U.S. intelligence community, which is a real diverse group of people focused on solving and understanding, maybe not solving, understanding the world's greatest challenges and those that face us. And then to hear... I'm I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, I was a consumer of that intelligence when I worked in the White House. And you had some sense of security knowing that this was information that was being gathered and not filtered through some kind of political Political filter and so on. And I'm sure you probably had the experience of listening to a briefing and you might ask a question and the question comes from your perspective and the perspective that comes with your role. And the answer that you most assuredly got back was caveated and well with this level of yeah with 100 assurance yeah. we think this and right. this is where it came from and you know everything's caveated everything is specified and because your job is to just be factual yeah and you can say in this world this these facts may lead to this and in this world these facts may lead here but i think to know that the person in charge of coordinating our intelligence agencies and coordinating their work together And in fact, the person who the president of the United States is leaning on as a resource to know that that person might be more um, focused on pleasing the president and a president who has demonstrated that he often doesn't like to receive information that is disagreeable to him. Uh, And the reality of the world is oftentimes disagreeable. Uh, The reality of a nuclear program, the reality of a threat, the reality of a potential pandemic outbreak Mm -hmm. is all disagreeable information you know the growth or or hits to a a terrorist organization Um, but to know that the person might perhaps be again more focused on pleasing a president than presenting factual information is is i think very concerning well he 
forced out the interim DNI, Mr. McGuire, Admiral McGuire, yes. early in part because he briefed the House Intel Committee on what Russia was up to right now. So that that is a concerning. And, and I guess then it's it's not just a question of you want to please the president, but if you want to keep your job. Mm-hmm. We now have evidence that the president will relieve you of your job if you present information. That doesn't so what work. is the tangible impact of that in terms of the safety of Americans? Are you worried about national security decisions being compromised? Well, I'm worried on a variety of fronts. I think that one of the challenges is that we have the best intel agencies in the world, but we also depend very heavily on our partners throughout the world. You know, if 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 information gathering is like creating a putting together a jigsaw puzzle, we might have 90 pieces, but those 10 missing pieces are actually pretty vital. And if we're supposed to be you know, through coordination with other intelligence agencies and other governments getting those 10 missing pieces from this country or that country, uh, the fact that we see American leadership degrading our own intelligence agencies, I think, harms us in the long run. Uh, the fact that we see U.S. leadership uh, speaking ill of intelligence and in some cases actually sharing foreign received intelligence jeopardizes our ability to get uh, information from those strong liaisons relationships. So I think overall the full extent of the problem is is not wholly knowable. I ha- take a lot of heart knowing that the career intel officers who are content to not talk about work to sacrifice time away from their family, to focus on the mission and the mission first. I know that they're still driven to do the right thing and that they are going to continue collecting the information um, because it's what they signed up for in the first place. Just a question of, as you say, whether the information gets delivered to the people who need to hear it, including the president of the United States. You don't have to vote on the DNI because that's a Senate confirmation, but would you vote for your colleague, Congressman Ratcliffe, for that position? If I had the ability to vote, I would vote for someone who had a, a broader understanding of the intelligence community, who had demonstrated an interest and a respect for the role of intelligence and the value that it can bring to informed decision making. Uh, and I don't think that Congressman Ratcliffe has demonstrated that in his in his time uh, as a public figure. His nomination, you know, actually could extend the tenure of Grinnell as an interim because until they confirm him or Radcliffe or someone else, Grinnell gets to stay there. Otherwise, he would have had to leave much sooner. What is your evaluation of him in that role? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I think that even just the notion that you have someone who's uh, allegedly supposed to be continuing as an ambassador while also being acting uh, director of National Ambassador Intelligence. Germany. Yes, yeah. to a, a strong ally, important nation, a strong relationship that is a full-time job. You know, I think that in and of itself demonstrates a, a, a kind of a, an understated view of the value of the role of either the DNI or the ambassadorial position. What is your uh, feedback from your friends in Germany about his tenure as ambassador? I haven't gotten very much direct feedback about uh, from him, but I think of as it's been noted in just even open source reporting, he's had some real challenges engaging with and and uh, the German government and being a good uh, or being the best foot forward for the American people. You're in the Foreign Affairs Committee, and you obviously bring great expertise to that. The uh, administration signed an agreement over the weekend with the Taliban to start a peace process with the goal of removing American 
troops after a couple of decades. What is your analysis of that agreement? What are your concerns about it? And what do you think the prospects for success are? I think there's a number of factors. First, one of the challenges to success might be that the uh, last I read, the Afghan government has said that they don't intend to release the prisoners mm-hmm. as as laid out in the agreement. A thousand prisoners were supposed to be released as a, a, an article of good faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's an initial challenge that may impact the the agreement overall. The way that I'm viewing this agreement is with um, a very baseline level of hopefulness. And certainly, I, I come from the intel community, so we're we're not so kind of up and down with our emotions on these sorts of things. But I think that if overall the administration views this as the right first step, then I think we're in the right direction. This certainly is not the finality of an agreement that the United States should have with the Taliban. But I do think it's a right first step in the direction towards if our ultimate goal is to remove U.S. forces and the need for U.S. forces to be in Afghanistan, then I think this is a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, the pathway forward is one that's fraught uh, when you're dealing with the United States, the government of Afghanistan, then Taliban leaders. And so it is my hope, and I think we should find out relatively shortly whether or not uh, the Taliban in- intends to be faithful to some of the tenets of this agreement and and even the notion of of trying to create peace in Afghanistan. I asked you about running for Congress. Mm -hmm. It was obvious that there were things that happened early in the Trump administration that caused you to consider running. What were those? At the most basic level, it was I had spent the entirety of my time at the agency collecting information to inform policymakers, uh, collecting information, facts and evidence, because I believed and I was and I worked with an entire organization full of people who believe that informed decision making is how you make good decisions and keep the American people safe. And so watching the administration pivot more towards a place of partisanship and more towards a place of loyalty over information or political promises over informed decision making as it relates to domestic policy as well, uh, for me, was was difficult to watch uh, watching us move to a place where we're pitting ourselves against some of our most basic and important allies uh, was hard for me to watch, antagonizing the intelligence community and and public servants who've devoted their lives to uh, keeping this country safe was hard to watch. But ultimately, it was the day of the House health care vote that I decided definitively that I would run. Um, and that was based on the notion that I have, we have dear friends uh, who have a, a child with a, a, a very difficult illness. And on the day that the House of Representatives voted to repeal the ACA, our friends expressed a level of fear that I have never known for the future of their daughter's health. And she had a pre-existing condition and a life-threatening, terrible illness. And, and they, and I just thought, you know, they spend every day fighting for their daughter. They spend every day trying to keep her alive, essentially. And the fear that they have expressed is something I have never known and never want to know. And if as much as they fight for this one little girl, somebody needs to be fighting for them. And and so it was it was very broad, but it was very personal. And so I said, you know what, I can fight for people like them and for people I'll never meet. And I have a background where I know I can be fearless in this. And I have a a, a focus on on informed decision-making that I think should be brought to any policy objectives, and I'm just, I'm going to do it. 
And you got elected in a district that was a traditionally Republican uh, district in the Richmond area. One of the reasons you got elected was because you could present yourself as someone who wasn't a particularly partisan person and you were able to attract people in a district that Trump carried. Yes. How has it been for you in the House? This is a very, very polarized period and you ran saying you didn't want to get involved in in impeachment discussions. You wanted to focus on issues. You resisted that for some time. And then after the Ukraine story surfaced, you and seven others who were from moderate districts who had, with all with national security backgrounds, came together, wrote a piece in the Washington Post that arguably was the most important hinge in the decision to move forward on the part of the House. Why did you do that? And do you think you jeopardized yourself by doing it? I mean, not yourself, because you're yourself, whether you're a Congress member or not, (laughs) but I'm talking about jeopardizing your seat. Well, so the reason that we did that is because we had been watching the situation very, very closely. And, you know, many of our colleagues were calling for an impeachment inquiry. But the allegations that came out as it related to Ukraine, the notion that the president was withholding foreign aid, so taxpayer appropriated dollars, trying to compel a foreign country to create, start an investigation for the purposes of undermining that individual's political future. To me, that was such a clear violation of the oath that he had sworn and and, and not publicly making that, that line in the sand clear for me was would be inconsistent with the duty that I had. And so what I set out to do the way that, and, and I think my colleagues who wrote the op-ed with me would agree, but I'll speak for myself, is I thought it was important to say this is a turning point to communicate that very clearly with the people uh, who I represent. This is a turning point. This is why it's a turning point. Um, I don't know where this investigation will lead, but we have a duty at this point to have a dedicated, focused investigation on these allegations, because if these allegations are true, then they are indeed impeachable. And I I didn't want to dance around it. I didn't want people to think, oh, well, she thinks we should do an impeachment inquiry, but maybe she's just Mm -hmm. not there yet. Maybe she's this or that. I wanted to be very clear that it is the focus of these particular allegations that require the full strength of Congress to dig into those investigations and either prove or disprove them for for two reasons. One, if they are true, we need to know because that's a an unthinkable thing, which indeed is where it led us. Um, but if they're not true, we also need to ensure that countries throughout the world know that that in fact our president wasn't willing to exchange foreign aid and didn't want political well, What about favors. the third possibility where you prove it's true and nothing happened? Oh, you know, at the time – at the time we thought through, you know, I, or I thought through that and talked about it with some of my colleagues, what happens if this is true and no one cares? And I would argue perhaps a fourth option, which is it's true, people care, but no one, not enough people had the the strength or the courage to say, you know, this is in fact, uh, this is in fact such a serious allegation. The facts prove it. They outline it that, yes, there should be a conviction. Meaning removing the president of the United States, which has never been done before. Do you think the case was proven? I think it was. Mm -hmm. I think it was. Do you think it was worth it to go through the exercise? And personally, how much has it made your life more complicated as you seek re-election? Well, I think I'll quote my parents on this, which is it's always worth it to do the right thing, no matter how hard it is. And so I believe we did the right thing. I believe I did the right thing. Um, And the implications of that or how hard it was wasn't 
in the end didn't matter because it was the right thing. Have you heard about it in your town hall meetings? Yes. <laughs> and what have you heard? So, uh, you know, I had a little bit of a rowdy town hall in the winter after uh, we had entered the impeachment inquiry. There's a, a lot of folks who voted for the president in my district uh, who are still wholly aligned with him, who don't want to believe that he did anything wrong. And so, um, you know, it was a it was a challenge. But uh, it was a challenge to stand before them in a kind of crowded auditorium and say, this is why I did what I did. This is why uh, I will vote to Im- impeach the president. This is this is why I thought it was important that we even have a dedicated impeachment inquiry. And I, I, I don't know how that will impact me in November 2020, but I do know that I have been able to look at constituents, you know, right in the eyes and say, you may not agree with this decision, but let me please explain to you why I did it. Mm-hmm. And I want to believe, and I hope it's true, that the level of uh, transparency that I have provided in what my decision-making process was, the level of detail that I have gone into when discussing you know, everything I did before making a decision, reading through the reports, you know, watching the testimony on TV, reading through uh, the written testimony, and just digging into it in order to really be comfortable saying I had I had taken in every fact I could take. Mm-hmm. I had taken in every bit of information before voting to impeach. Um, and I want to believe that people will respect me for the way I went about making the decision. Yeah. Because, you know, the message from the other side was this was a purely partisan exercise. You voted against, and you said you would when you ran, you voted against Speaker Pelosi. Mm-hmm. How do you think she has handled all of this? And it's, she has certainly become the more polarized yeah. figure in all of this. Has she handled this the right way, and are you is she a burden for you in this? <laughs> well, in this I, I'm, I'm going to rewind a little bit and also say, you know, we've actually voted— Prior to this impeachment inquiry, we had voted on a, there was an impeachment charge that came forward in the House, and we voted. I voted to table it. I didn't think that it was worthy of a vote in the 115th Congress. I think uh, such votes came up twice. So people who say like this is just this was their intent from day one, I think miss the fact that there were three prior right. efforts, and the majority of House Democrats even voted it down. Now, as it relates to uh, the Speaker's work, you know, I, I don't envy the position that she's been in. I think it's been um, a significant challenge because she had members of the Democratic caucus who did want to impeach the president. And held them off for a long time. As, as early as, you know, maybe even uh, back to when he was first sworn in, and then there were members of the caucus who were opposed to it, as, yeah. as I was for such a long time. What I have appreciated about the way that she handled it was she did not endeavor to influence anyone. And Mm -hmm. even once we were in an impeachment inquiry, even when the impeachment vote was coming, she and Majority Leader Hoyer and Whip Clyburn would explicitly say, we will not whip on this vote. We will not influence people on this vote. Mm -hmm. You vote your conscience. Um, and I, I think that's an important thing because, you know, f- frequently on other bills, oh, we really want to make sure everybody's aligned on this. And, you know, they'll they'll try and, you know, other members of the caucus, and it happens on both sides of the aisle, they'll sort of, you know, harangue you, hey, hey, vote with us on this, vote with us on this. But on this one, there wasn't even a peep of that, uh, which I, I think is an important thing to say because I, I, I think that's it might be hard to believe, but in fact, it's absolutely the truth. You talk about disputes with the Republicans, but 
within your own caucus, you have come under fire from some of the more progressive members. You voted for a Senate immigration Mm -hmm. authorization of spending for the border that was less than a House bill that was passed in terms of some of the humanitarian aid that was included. One of your colleagues called you the Child Abuse Caucus, those members who voted for it. You've been targeted by members of your own caucus. How uncomfortable is that? Oh, it's not it's not comfortable at all. You know, I think but I think we've settled into a good place. Uh, You mentioned over the summer we had a supplemental bill, which was the House passed a really strong supplemental border bill that was kind of everything a a very strong Democratic majority would want to see if we're sending money to the border to help uh, the the families and the kids and the individuals who um, uh, were you know, had crossed the border and were then being held in facilities. And our bill was this very strong bill that was not going to get a vote in the Senate. And the Senate passed their version of a supplemental with, I forget the exact number, but more than 80 votes at this point. And this was even during some of the presidential campaigning when all the senators who were running for president mm-hmm. at the time were down in Florida themselves. So missing some senators who would have otherwise voted, it got more than 80 votes, including the two Democratic senators from Virginia who said, this is a good bill. This gets money to the border. This ensures we can feed the kids who are being held with their families. This is getting first aid supplies. This is paying overtime. For the for the agents who are mm-hmm. helping these families and, you know, and, and it's a difficult situation for everyone. And and so it was my priority was to address the immediacy of a problem, which was they were going to run out of money and we weren't going to be able to feed children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will never apologize for addressing the immediacy of a problem that is a hungry child. Well, this goes to a larger issue that we now see playing out in the presidential debate, huh. which is the perfect and the good. Yeah. And the nature of governing in a divided country and a divided Congress, it leads me to the question about the presidential race. Bernie Sanders is obviously, he's a, as we sit here today and we're recording this the day before Super Tuesday, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Virginia is one of the states that will be voting. He would represent the probably the other end of that debate, the notion that incrementalism is not enough, Medicare for all. Green New Deal, big, bold initiatives. You've opposed some of those initiatives. Now you're faced with the prospect of the choice of who will be on the top of the ticket with you. Tell me how you're going to vote tomorrow and what your feelings are about how this might affect your race. Yeah. Well, so first, David, I have to start with rejecting the notion of incrementalism. Yeah. Um, I think it's. I'm depicting it as it. As 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 other people talk about it. Yeah. The other uh, others would call it. Oh, it's just incrementalism. Oh, you know, you're just settling for less. But, you know, if we all want to go 10 feet in a particular direction and we can move five and then recoup and rejoin and and build an additional coalition to go that additional three and then potentially the remainder of the way, that's progress. If I say I want to go 10 feet and if we can't go 10 feet, I'm not going anywhere. I haven't actually progressed. And so it's actually an issue of progress versus – well, and look, I'm period. very sympathetic to that. I was here for the Affordable Care Act yeah. debate in the first place, and there were the people who said if we don't have a public option, which we wanted and couldn't get, yeah. that we shouldn't do anything. And there were 20 million people who got health care who yep. wouldn't have gotten it, and people with preexisting conditions who got protections, yep. they wouldn't have gotten. In your case, there were children who got 
food and things that they needed at the border who wouldn't have gotten it. So I'm sympathetic to that, but I don't want to talk around the the, the question here. (laughs) I will answer your question. You're trying to run the clock out. I know what you're doing, (laughs) Congresswoman. Uh, so, so to answer your question, well, first, I actually cast a ballot. So this is the day before Super mm-hmm. Tuesday. Virginia is a Super Tuesday state. Yeah. Knowing that I would be on Capitol Hill and unable to vote, I cast my vote about two and a half weeks ago. And uh, at that time, I voted for Senator Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. But I... And who, who, as we speak, is is withdrawing from the race right. and endorsing Vice President Biden. That's right. And and after the people I represent have the opportunity to go to the polls, then I will be doing the same. I, I support... You know, I, I supported the message, frankly, of, of Klobuchar or Buttigieg or Biden, which is we need we need to pull this country together. We need to focus on solving problems. We need to focus on um, moving this country forward in a, in a united way. Uh, you know, from a policy standpoint, I'm a supporter of a public option. I'm a supporter of allowing Medicare to negotiate its prescription drug prices, which I've voted on. I, um, you know, I'm a supporter of really trying to get our, our arms wrapped around college affordability issue, but that starts with you know, the the loans that are devastating families, it doesn't start with all of a sudden making college free, which it seems, uh, well, I, I you, we don't have enough time for me to go into that. Some of the folks I have already mentioned have left the race. Um, and before that, there were strong candidates who I think also spoke to the same vision of a strong, uh, diverse, vibrant America where we create opportunity through, you know, e- economic engagement through education. Um, and, and some of those others have already lo- left the race. Um, so would Bernie Sanders at the top of the ticket jeopardize you in your district? Are you concerned about that? And, and some of your colleagues, this yeah. is an argument that Joe Biden and others and Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar have all been making. Yeah. Well, so I don't want a single payer system. And I would say the majority of my district doesn't want a single payer system. I don't support free college. And I would say the majority of the voters in my district don't support free college. I think that a move towards socialism is certainly not something that I Does support. The word, is that word a toxic word in your district? I think it's a toxic word most places. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a, a vibrant capitalist country with guardrails that help, you know, ensure that people can have a boost if they fall on hard times. But, you know, we're, we're a country of, of entrepreneurs and explorers and, and big ideas. So are you worried that he being on the top of the ticket will jeopardize you and others who you came into Congress yeah. with in 2018? And how difficult will it be for you to navigate if he's the nominee? I think it's always, you know, I'm, I'm running against whoever the Republican nominee is running against me. I'm commenting on what's happening. Uh, you know, my race will be against the the individual who's ultimately has a nomination against me, um, and and some of what I touch on and some of what I touched on in 2018 and will in 2020 is of course what's happening at the administration level, but I think it creates a whole new complicating factor to say okay these are the ideologies of the right that I'm challenging and opposing and now these are the ideologies of the far left that I'm so it ends up being which will be assigned to you by your opponents well, of course but I mean in in fairness. Anything that that my opponents don't like, they will assign to me, however right. fake or false it is. Um, but literally having to walk a line of saying, well, I don't agree with them, but I don't agree with them either. You know, I, I don't think that's a – it isn't the most enjoyable way to run for Congress. How about that? And maybe not the most <laughs> efficient or, or successful yeah. way to run for Congress. Let me just finish by asking you this. You came to Congress. It was a very heady moment when you all stood on the steps and took your photo – 
all these new members, lots of your colleagues who were in the national security area who served in one way are now serving in another, many, many women, historic number of women. And it was a time of great idealism and a time of great hope. We're now 14 months in, and it's been such a raw political time. How have you processed that? Has it been disappointing to you? You know, No, this is what we signed up for. I think you never know what to expect, but the challenges that we face with this administration, uh, the way some of our colleagues across the aisle have been unwilling to challenge even the most kind of unthinkable policy priorities of, of their own party, none of this actually uh, is wholly surprising. And all of the challenges we're facing are, represent the reasons that so many of us ran. You know, and you, you mentioned the national security folks, but we also have Kim Schreier from Washington State, a pediatrician, or Johanna Hayes, mm-hmm. former Teacher of the Year. There's all these people who had really vibrant lives and careers who interrupted them out of a desire to, for some of us, continue serving when we had previously served in the national security space, and for others to continue serving where they had previously mm-hmm. been caretakers in the community, either in healthcare or education. Um, and so I think we all stood up and decided to run for a very specific reason, which is, you know, we saw things that we didn't find acceptable. And so I don't think it's wholly surprising that those things continue to this day. And I think that many of us are But working is it wearing? Some days, yes, and some days, you know, the the very wary, wearing nature of it is what is also motivating because you think as hard as it is, we're here. As hard as it is, if someone watching the news and they don't like the news coming out, they then see, you know, pan over shot to members of Congress, we're there. Their voices are perhaps being represented in a new way or their kids can see – members of Congress that may look like them or that might think, oh, I could do that. So there's an element of kind of the immediacy of the policy that we're working on. And and the Democratic House, Democratic-led House, has actually put forward a lot of really good policies that we've passed with bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. It's not getting a vote in the Senate. That's the legislative piece. The other piece of it is demonstrating. You look at the freshman members – uh, of of the House and the number of town halls that we've had and the number of direct engagements. And you think back to 2017 when it was, you know, there's like four people nationwide having town halls. That's a gross exaggeration, but it, 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 it felt like that. And now you have uh, members of Congress that are doing town halls and open meetings and engaging directly. Uh, and then you have kids who are coming to Capitol Hill on their field trips and they're up in the gallery looking down at us and one of us looks like them. And so I I think beyond just the legislative anxiety that so many people feel across the country wondering what's happening, what's the administration doing, how can Congress either stop it or address it or do more, there's also a cultural piece where I want to believe, and I think it's true, we're helping people recognize that they should expect more out of their citizens who have become legislators as opposed to – um, you know, these lifetime legislators who are disconnected from the needs of the people. And that's that's where I find on the hard, hard days that are particularly wearing, you know, that's where I find the positivity is the school kids who think, oh, my gosh, you know, they don't know all of the day to day trials and tribulations. They say, oh, my gosh, look at her. I could be like that. Yeah. Do you uh, leave a doodle for them? <laughs> Listen, I have to run, but I so appreciate getting a chance to sit down with you. And I I should thank you for your service, not just in Congress, but uh, 
in your other positions in government. You've lived a life of service, and uh, I applaud you for that. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.